Over to you. With you here again. Uh, now for something completely different, you might say, here in 1 Samuel 28. It is a very unique chapter in the Bible. <clears throat> now, the book of 1 Samuel is really interesting. I hope you've been following the story. It is brilliant literature. If you're new or a visitor, then just to set the context, the events recorded in our passage took place about 1000 BC when the nation of Israel had just established itself as a monarchy, right? So they've just anointed their first king, appointed their first king. And last time I was here, the passage was 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we looked at that first king. He was a young man called Saul. Right at the start of his life, he was tall, he was handsome, he was a gifted leader, he was inspiring, he was a national hero. Very quickly, he became a national hero. Right, that was, that was the start, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now we're in 1 Samuel 28. This is the last night of his life. The end. And it's tragic. This is not uplifting, spoiler, right? <laughs> if you come to be encouraged and uplifted, change your expectations, right? It's tragic. From such potential, we, he has become a pitiful rack. A man so desperate you know, for any kind of help that he goes to a witch. That's why I said this is something completely different. Tonight, I think it's the only chapter in the Bible that we have an account of a man going to a witch, a medium for help. And he gets no help. All there is is confirmation of impending doom. So yeah, I've inspired you already. All right, let's, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28, and we'll read this. <clears throat> it mightn't be uplifting, but it's certainly interesting, right? 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. <clears throat> now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. So there's going to be a war between the Philistines and Israel, and Saul is the king of Israel. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomsoever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. Uh, that was a, a prophet that had given Saul a lot of help in the past, and he, uh, he's dead, it says in verse 3. But then this is... <laughs> 
verse 12 says, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. He means on the far side, on death, shall be dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw it, he was terrified. She said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. That would break your heart, wouldn't it? Imagine spending the last night on earth in a witch's hovel, sitting on her couch, trying to comfort yourself with a bit of bread and meat before arising to meet your own doom. It's tragic for anybody, but this is the king of Israel. How did the great king Saul come to this? I, I don't know what you would do if you were told this was your last night on earth. Like, this is what Samuel says, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. What would you do? What would I do? <laughs> if you're told tomorrow your last night on earth. Maybe after the shock, I don't know, would you pick yourself up and just, well, have a meal, try to enjoy a, a final meal? Try and enjoy yourself as best you can. I don't know, I dare say, what, what a person, I think what a person chooses to do with their last hours reveals a lot about them. You know, I had a relative, a lovely Christian lady who lived a good and faithful life but she wasn't very open about her faith, maybe with her family and things. She took cancer and only lived a few months. And I was delighted to hear that on her deathbed, she spoke to all of her grandchildren individually, one by one, and told them they needed to give their lives to Jesus Christ. What a person does with their last few hours says a lot about them. And unfortunately, this is Saul's last few hours. He's facing imminent death, and the king of Israel reveals himself to be a man so spiritually blind, all he can do is get a little comfort from a final meal at a witch's table. 
So, so what is the context here of this chapter? Now, the Philistines had gathered for war. Saul is the king of Israel. He musters his troops, it says back there in, in verse 3 and 4. And then he sees this vast enemy army, and he falls into a panic. It says he was afraid. His heart greatly trembled. And he, he becomes desperate for some guidance. What is he going to do? But the Lord won't answer him. And then you're like, aha, well, there you go. No wonder Saul went to a witch, you know, for some guidance. The Lord won't say anything. He's, he's trying to get some answers, and he won't get anything. But before we blame the Lord, we need to trace backwards in this story. We're, of course, in chapter 28. And this is coming at the end of Saul's life. And if you go back to the beginning, back to chapter 8, whenever Saul was first on the scene, he had lost his father's donkeys. Do you remember that? <laughs> if you followed this story through. And do you know what? How did, how did he find them? The Lord helped him and guided him. And right at the start of Saul's life, the Lord was saying, I will be with you. Yeah, you're going to be king of Israel, but I will be with you. I will help you. I will guide you in every circumstance. Give you all the help you need. But then in his first test in chapter 13, he, he doesn't even wait on God's guidance. He just, you know, despite God's training, his, his, his promises, his assurances, he just went ahead and he risked the entire army because he didn't even think he needed God's guidance. And then in chapter 15, God gave him really clear guidance, right? In fact, clear commands, instructions through the prophet Samuel as to what he did, should do, and he blatantly disobeyed them. He ignored God and did what he wanted to do. And then in chapter 22, whenever you go on through, he actually murders an entire village of God's priests. These were the men responsible for this thing called the Urim here, the Urim. And that was something the priests used to bring, you know, to bring guidance from the Lord for people like, like Saul. And he's just murdered all of them, an entire village. And then he's saying, well, why is the Urim not working? See, this is the saddest thing about Saul in this chapter. He is so blinded by his sin, he can't even see how ridiculous he's being. There is something so pathetic about how Saul ends up here. He's lost, he's blind, he's desperate, and he is doomed. And you see, the warning then that we're getting from this chapter is that some, you know, some people can think they can live a life of rebellion and disobedience and then turn to God on their deathbed now, in one sense, that is true because God is amazingly gracious and he will accept anyone who sincerely repents, even on their deathbed. But in another sense, it's highly dangerous because there comes a point whenever sin becomes our master, right? Saul had played with sin all his life and now sin is playing with him. You know, the condition for forgiveness is repentance. It always is in the Bible. And yeah, if someone on their deathbed repents, God will forgive them. That's what God does. But the condition is repentance. And if we persist in our rebellion, there's a very real danger that we go, go beyond the point of being able to repent. The Bible says that again and again. And Saul, at this point in his life, he can feel remorse, he can feel regret, but he can no longer repent. He is so hardened in his rebellion against God that he'll never change. 
And you can see that because just before this in chapter 26, he actually admits to David that he has played the fool. He admits he is wrong, and yet he doesn't change. <laughs> he just, no matter what evidence he is given by this point, he just will not change. He has rebelled against the truth for so long, he has become fixed in that state. So God doesn't say anything because there is no point. It will do no good. See, this is beyond tragic. Now, I just want to give you a little bit more context about this section of 1 Samuel for further study as well. The writer to 1 Samuel is actually, he keeps changing scenes. Towards the end of the book, he sort of flicks over to David and his men, and then flicks back to Saul and flicks over to David and flicks back to Saul. And in chapter 27, he gives us quite a lot about David. And he's actually uh, comparing and contrasting these two kings, King David the, the king who's had to flee the country, and Saul, the current king. And he's drawn this contrast between them. And it's subtle but genius because they are both being hypocrites, but in opposite ways. David seems disloyal to God, but he isn't. And Saul seems loyal to God, but isn't. So in chapter 27, David has had to flee the country because Saul has been pursuing him, and he has joined the enemy. He has joined the Philistines, and he, David is actually pretending to be disloyal to God and to Israel, when in reality, he is, he is true and loyal to God. And Saul is the king of Israel. He's, in, he's the real king in the real land. He seems to be loyal to God. He seems to be seeking guidance from God here in this chapter, but inwardly, he is an utter rebel and always has been. I want you to turn back to see this in chapter 27. Let's, let's just compare and contrast these two kings. We're not going to read the whole chapter, so I've just put up the verses that we're going to read. First of all, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 27, verse 1 and 2. And this is where we go to the scene with David. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moa, king of Gath. Then skip down to verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziglag. Therefore Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And verse 10. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? Asked David. David would say, Against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the Jeremalites or against the Negev of the Kenites, and David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant." In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 28, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. That word bodyguard actually means the keeper of my head. Literally translated would mean, I will make you the keeper of my head. You see, and the, the writer is actually making us he's using a lot of humor in, the, in, in this passage because he's showing how David has completely fooled this Philistine king of Gath 
so much that he actually makes David his personal bodyguard, the keeper of his head. And we're meant to remember back to chapter, you know, the most famous incident of David back in chapter 17, whenever uh, David had fought the Philistine from Gath called Goliath, and David had kept his head in his tent after he had taken it off Goliath's body, right? And now this king is saying, you can be the keeper of my head as well. You see, David is using, look at, look at David's crafty use of deceit all throughout this section. He, he feigns humility here with Achish uh, back in, in verse 5 of chapter 27. Oh, uh, we'll not stay in the royal city with you. Could you give us another little town? And he says, oh, certainly, we'll give you Ziklag, and Israel have kept Ziklag to this day, <laughs> you see? And it gave, you know, it gave David more freedom to do what he wanted then without being seen, you know, without being known. So David went off raiding all around him and destroying all the enemies of Israel. And then whenever Achish asked him, what have you been doing? He says, oh, I was just around, and he's given very vague geographical you know, kind of references, and he lets Achish conclude that he's fighting his own people, but in reality, he is helping his own people by removing all their enemies from Israeli, Israel territory. And then in chapter 28, verse 1, there's this war between Israel and the Philistines, and we're kind of left in suspense. How is David going to get out of this? How is he going to avoid having to fight with the Philistines? And, and we're not quite sure, we're not really shown how this is, but Achish says, you're going to fight with me. And then David gives a very vague answer, like, you shall know what your servant can do. <laughs> so, so you see what the writer's doing? It's hypocrisy in a good sense. Achish is totally sucked into believing David has cut all ties with his own people when the very opposite is true. David is being a hypocrite in the sense of putting on a mask to hide his true intentions. He is deliberately appearing to be disloyal to God and God's people while secretly serving them. He is deliberately hiding his true self from God's enemies. And Saul is a hypocrite in the opposite sense. He is appearing godly. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of God's people when he has no relationship with God at all. And that's why God is not playing along whenever Saul inquires of him. It's a total farce. You know, he's calling on the Urim to divine the will of God whenever he's just killed the priests of the Lord. He is seeking the Lord's guidance through means that he is forbidden. He's going to a witch, to a medium that God completely forbid. He is swearing by the Lord to protect a witch from any punishment. He's, he's, he's almost trying to use the Lord against himself in this. And, and Saul himself had outlawed mediums as the official government policy of Israel. Of course it was, because they were God's nation. Yet here he is seeking one out in private. You know, it's a wee bit like the government officially banning get-togethers to stop the spread of COVID and then having a party. You know, this is complete hypocrisy and God is not playing that game. So, so they're both hypocrites, but in the very different ways. David is under extreme pressure. He's pretending to be disloyal to God. Saul is under pressure, and he appears to be genuinely seeking God's guidance, but he has never been loyal to God and never will be. It's like the difference between Peter and Judas. Do you remember on that night whenever Jesus was arrested? Both were hypocrites in a sense, but very, very different, weren't they? 
Peter, under extreme pressure, pretended to be disloyal to Jesus. I don't even know the man, but underneath he loved the Lord. Judas pretended to love Jesus, came and gave him a kiss on the cheek. I had never once had any love for the Lord at all. All he was in it was for the money. He looked like a disciple, but had never been one. It is the same with Saul here. No love for God. He is just trying to use God. And when God won't work, he then turns to other sources. This is a dark chapter. It shows us where sin will take us if we aren't careful. But the simple solution is come to the light. Stop hiding. You know, before I was a Christian, I dressed up and went to church while secretly doing what God hated under the covers. My public and my private lives were very different, and I am thankful to the Lord for intervening before I went too far down that road. That is a very dangerous road to go down. It's truly tragic to see how dark and blind the king of Israel has become. He's meant to be the leader of God's people. David is, is fooling Achish. He knows exactly what he's doing, but Saul is, is, is blind himself. He's lost. He is desperate. And he ends up going to a witch for answers. Now, why did he go to a witch? You know, for, many people go to these kind of things for, for genuine reasons. I have a, a good friend whose parents turned to the occult. His own mother actually became a medium. And they were not careless people seeking thrills in the supernatural. They had lost a child. You know, my, my, my mate's baby brother to a tragic cot death, and they never got over it. And in their desperation, they turned a dark part. And Saul is facing death here. And it's too big for him. And he doesn't know how to handle it. And it's too tragic, and it's too final. Uh, but the trouble is, going to these sources just leads to more darkness. There's no answers. The Bible prohibits all forms of witchcraft and mediums because they are not helpful. There are no answers. Only God himself can answer our greatest needs. And many today don't know that, but Saul should have known that. He's, he's the king of Israel. He is the most privileged man in the most privileged nation on earth. Saul has been trying to use God all his life, and God will no longer respond, so he turns to other means of guidance in rebellion against God. This story reveals that Saul saw God just as another tool in his toolbox. If God won't work, I'll use something else. <laughs> the king of Israel. And he's going to ask the prophet Samuel. And the problem was, as verse 3 reminds us, Samuel is dead, so he seeks a medium to communicate with the dead Samuel. That's why he went to this witch, to get around God. If God isn't working, I'll use something else. And this is one of the only chapters in the Bible which speak of these things. Deliberately so, because of our natural human fascination with the dark arts, God doesn't tell us much about these things, lest we get drawn into being deceived ourselves. You know, nowadays in seances, when people think they're speaking to their dead relatives, they may well be speaking to demons pretending to be their dead relatives, deceiving them about the afterlife. But on this occasion, it seems to be the real Samuel who comes up and speaks to Saul from the far side of death. The witch herself actually seems shocked by it. Perhaps God intervened here for his own purposes. I love the fact that Samuel seems annoyed by the disturbance. He's like, why have you bothered me? 
He certainly doesn't give Saul any way out, any answers. He just confirms what he had told Saul earlier, back in chapter 15. Because of your persistent disobedience, you're going to lose the kingdom. And by tomorrow, Saul, you and your sons will be with me in death. They're chilling words. They would make the hairs in the back of your neck stand up. And it seems that Saul sincerely wants, you know, it seems that Saul sincerely wants God's help and guidance. But this is just another instance of Saul trying to use God, trying to get around God. And Samuel is going to turn up and say, you won't. (laughs) What God has said isn't going to change. You see, this is the very heart and essence of idolatry. Trying to use God. And notice in this passage, whenever Samuel speaks, he refers back to Saul's disobedience in chapter 15. Whenever Saul was at war with the Amalek, back then Saul spared the king of the Amalekites, a man called Agag, against the explicit command of God. Do you know why he did it? Because it suited him. Saul had wanted to parade Agag around the country like a trophy to show off his great military skills. You see, that's, this is exactly what Saul had been doing all his life. He obeyed God when it suited him. He ignored God when it suited him. Saul had a pagan view of God. Yes, you had to do a bit, he, he thought you had to do a bit of religion, throw in religious words, religious ceremonies, offer a few sacrifices to keep God sweet, and then he will actually be quite helpful. <laughs> you can actually use God for your own purposes. And back then in chapter 15, look at what Samuel confronted Saul with in chapter 15, verse 22 to 33. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And back then, Samuel compares Saul's disobedience to the sin of divination or witchcraft. He says both these things are from the same source. You see, witches and mediums are trying to use the dark powers to control God, to make money, to get God to do what we want. And Saul has spent a lifetime doing the same, using God rather than obeying God. And if anyone was in doubt about that until now, because of the religious language he used, because of his sacrifices and all these sort of things, well, now it is obvious. At the end of his life, he ends up trying to manipulate God through a witch. You couldn't get more obvious. And God won't answer him. And God overrules. Samuel says, that's not going to happen. God can't be changed. You can't manipulate God. What God has said back to you in chapter 15 is about to come true. Why did you bother bringing me up again just to tell you the same thing? Right? That's what Samuel said. And then we have this final scene. Like, how did it come to this? The king of Israel, the most privileged nation on earth, the most privileged man, lying on a couch at a witch's table, trying to enjoy a final meal, knowing it's his last night on earth. You know, back in chapter 8, whenever he was young, God had not only offered him help and guidance. You know what God had really offered him? He offered him fellowship. A genuine, you know, he said, Saul, me and you can have a genuine and personal relationship for the rest of our life. 
That's, it. That's what I mean by you being king. You know, I'll, I, I'm the one who's making you king. You will be king for me. You will rule the nation for me. You will represent me to the people. You will do my will. You will bring me pleasure. We can enjoy fellowship together as you rule for me. And Saul wasn't interested in any of that. He wasn't interested in God. He wasn't interested in ruling for God and with God. All he wanted was the trappings of being a king, the power, the prestige, the honor, the big house, the fancy food, the servants. And without God, that's, well, I suppose that's all that life is, a few pleasures for a few years, and then nothing forever. You see, this is hell begun here for Saul. Saul had lived his life without God and was about to enter an eternity without God and without all the good things that God gives. And how many people today are living this same tragic existence? They might do a bit of religion at times to try to keep God sweet, but generally ignore him, disobey him. For a few short years, then they try to squeeze in whatever pleasure they can get out of life, and they miss the entire purpose of their existence. And even as Christians, we can easily slip into that same mindset of living for things and largely ignoring God. You know, a nice house, a holiday, a meal out, and let this story remind us that the whole purpose in all of those things is fellowship with God, is a relationship with God that starts now and goes on into eternity. The whole point in all of this is to develop a deep friendship with God who gives us these things. You know, as C.S. Lewis puts it, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's all Saul had lived for. And God, in his kindness, gives him one last feast to try to enjoy as that's all the man has ever lived for. And death was about to take it all away. And if we have spent our life trying to use God to get things rather than developing a genuine personal fellowship with God, then, then what have we? When death comes, it's all gone. So this is a dark chapter, isn't it? We should have scheduled it for Halloween, really, rather than the midsummer, I think. Because it's the sad end of the the first king of Israel, a man who starts so full of potential but has no interest in God, no interest in a genuine relationship, and he ends up spiritually blind, desperately trying to manipulate God and failing, and in defeat, having a final midnight feast with a witch. It's a scary story, not because it has a witch, but because of the state Saul ends up in. It is a serious warning to any of us tempted to go down that same path of using God. But that, that just leads to darkness, to blindness and darkness forever. But the way of light is very clear, even in this passage. All God's asks of us is that we come to the light, that we stop any hypocrisy, that we take off the religious facade, and we seek to genuinely know God. That's all he wants. He says, I want to have a relationship with every one of you. Just come to the light. 
and that we obey the light. That we don't try to manipulate God and use God for our own purposes, but we actually genuinely become willing to do whatever God says. Not the bits that suit us, not ignoring some bits, not trying to use God, not trying to control God. That is sheer idolatry. Whereas living life in obedience to God leads to this wonderful fellowship that, that starts now and lasts into eternity where there will be feasts forevermore. Let us take this warning then as, this, as 1 Samuel comes towards the end, as we see the contrast between David and Saul, a man who genuinely, David, a man who genuinely loved God deep down, and Saul, a man who never even had any interest in God, despite all the religious facade. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for just being real with us once again in your word. It, it is a dark chapter as we watch the tragic end of this man. So privileged, Lord, so blessed to be the king of the most privileged nation on earth, a nation that was meant to know God, it was meant to live for God and serve him. And here he is meant to lead the nation in that, and yet with no interest in God himself. And ends up so blind, so lost, so desperate. Lord, it is a tragic end. And we pray for many in our world who, who are lost and blind and desperate, even as they face the biggest things in life, like death itself. Lord, there is no answers to these things outside of you. Outside of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection, we have no answer to the biggest things in life. We pray, Lord, that those who are lost and seeking for answers to these things would not turn to mediums and witches and seances, they would, they would find the true answer in the living God. We pray, Lord, for your light to spread all around this world, this dark world. And we pray for those of us who know the truth, who have the privilege of the Word of God in our hands, who've been brought up in, in Christian environments, Lord. We pray that we would see the, the, the reality of what you're offering to us, a relationship with you, that these, these, these the answers to life are not found in seeking to use God, but in, in living with you, in fellowship with you. Lord, we pray that we would prioritize that, that we would genuinely seek to know you more, love you more, and live for you more, to obey you more. That we wouldn't seek to just live for the things that you give, but live for the God who gives them. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to to the reality behind life, the God that made us, that made us for yourself, to know you and live with you forever. We pray, Lord, for the, uh, to take these things to heart and to seek to obey you, to live in the light and obey the light as we uh, face even all of the things in life that are too big for us. And we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.